Almost 1,000 people have died at the hands of police and methods for tracking those numbers are still evolving. What is my risk uh, by race of being killed by the police? Mm. Um, so, and that risk is you have a three times higher risk as a black person than a white person. And that's the answer to that question, which is why it's, that's the, the, what is being emphasized in Visualize on the site. I sit down with Mapping Police founder, Samuel Singyangwe, who says that data science is the key to saving lives. Because knowledge is power and power is change. This is Common Narrative. Police have killed 927 people in the U.S., according to Mapping Police Violence. And black people have been 24% of those killed by police in 2022, despite being only 13% of the population. So the numbers are staggering. And prior to projects like Mapping Police Violence, data like this wasn't collected all in one place. And the impact of that has the potential to affect implicit bias training efforts and has real world consequences on the street. I sit down with founder and data scientist Samuel Singyangwe on why he thinks people like him are the future of policing. Sig out. Three, two, one. My thanks to Sam Singyangwe. Check out the project at mappingpolice.us. And for more Common Narrative, you can hit us up on social at Common Narrative or Common Narrative Media on YouTube, of course, and tune in every Monday from 1 to 3 right here on Spark FM Online and find past episodes on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Take care of each other. Um. So, Sam, is it okay, is it okay if I call you Sam? Sure. Okay, perfect. Um, Sam, talk to me about why you've, you've directed this research. What led you to this project, to founding um, your organization? Talk to me a little bit about that story. Sure. So, um, you know, my work over the past eight years has really been focused on collecting and using data as a tool to fight police violence across the country. Uh, and that work really began in the context of the Ferguson uprising in 2014 and some of the initial national conversations that were happening that really were sparked by the protests over poli the police murder of Mike Brown. And in those early sort of days and weeks and months of the, the ensuing protests and the, that national conversation, there was a basic question about data. Um, and that question was, how many people are the police killing? in the United States of America. And, you know, the federal government can tell you how much rainfall there was going back 100 years in rural Oklahoma, but they cannot tell you how many people the police killed this year or last year or the year before that. And I mean, we're, you know, eight years into this, this conversation, the federal government said that they would build a database to track people who are killed by the police or shot by the police. They said that in 2016, they still, still have not published any useful data on the subject since. So um, that was sort of the context. And I had no idea, you know, I was, at the time I was working in uh, Oakland focused on educational inequity. So I was working with community-based organizations to build out data systems that could track how often kids were being uh, arrested at school or um, how often black and brown kids were being uh, placed in, you know, 
classes that were less challenging than white kids, et cetera. Um, and there was all this data that we had access to to track these things in schools across the country. In fact, you know, the federal government, the Department of Education maintains a database where you can look up for virtually any school in America, you can look up how often kids are being uh, suspended in school, out of school, how that breaks down by race, how it breaks down by gender, um, how often kids are being referred to law enforcement. All of this data is being tracked for schools, but for so the general community and how police are interacting with using force against even killing community members, that information wasn't being tracked. So that was sort of the, the context was, you know, understanding the power that data can have to, to help make the case for change, seeing that there was no useful data really being produced in the space of police violence. There were a few databases um, that were sort of emergent at that time, but they didn't have the level of detail to be able to do sort of the most basic analysis around race, around you know, how often people who were killed were armed or unarmed, which police departments were killing people at higher rates, which places were making progress towards ending police violence. So those were sort of the basic questions um, that, that really started collecting data and, and conducting research to start answering. Why do you think this data is not, hadn't been regularly collected before you began your project? So, I mean, to be honest, it's, it, it's probably the unwillingness mm. of the federal government to, to collect it. They don't want to, for, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, they're getting this data through their official data collection program, um, which is called the, the Use of Force Incident Data Collection Program that the FBI runs. That program asks each law enforcement agency for their data, right? And so you have 18,000 different law enforcement agencies in the U.S., it's trying to go to each agency and ask them to report that data every single year in a reliable and consistent way with no enforcement power. And you know, as we've seen, about half of all law enforcement agencies just refuse to comply with that. And so you end up with a very incomplete uh, database. And then the data that they do collect, they don't even make public because they've adopted an internal rule that says, until you have 80% of the nation's law enforcement participating in the program, they're not going to release the individualized uh, agency level data that you need to even understand you know, which police departments are shooting people and at what rate. So that's, that's sort of the most basic analysis that you can do and you still can't do it because one of the rules they've adopted internally that, that make it uh, almost impossible for them to ultimately release that data because they don't have anywhere near 80% participation. Yeah. And then two, their structure, their methodology is intentionally focused on getting this data directly from law enforcement agencies. And they don't supplement that data with information from media reports, from community-based databases, from, you know, in some, in some states you have, you know, a big uh, media organization that will do this work. So in Arizona, you have the Arizona Republic that tracks police shootings at, at the state level every single year. So they have these databases and they're public, the data is out there. I mean, Mapping Police Violence, the database um, that, that I launched back in 2015, I mean, that we're still updating that every single week. We've tracked 906 people killed by police so far this year, um, and all of that data is public. So, so, I mean, they could just simply get that database and use it to cross-reference and add to their own database and keep that up to date. Um, but again, they, they just choose not to do that. Um, and to sort of maintain a database that is that is not only incomplete, but completely off limits to, to researchers and community members. 
you know, I'm a journalist in my other life, and I know how hard it can be to get information from law enforcement agencies specifically, government agencies specifically, if they don't want to give it to you. Have you had any challenges in collecting this data? Oh, absolutely. So, um, and, and it depends on the type of data. So when we're talking about cases where the police shoot people or, or, or kill people, um, those cases tend to be reported in the media somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so according to the best sort of research estimates, about 95% of the time that somebody's killed by police, it's reported in some article somewhere. And so we have a system of finding those articles online, a system of Google alerts tied to keywords like officer-involved shooting, police shooting, et cetera. Uh, and so we're able to, to collect in a, in, a, in a comprehensive way um, information on, on cases where police kill people. And so we know, you know about how often p- people are killed by police, about 1,100 people a year, every single year, going back to 2013, which is as early as our database goes back through the present. So, so that information we have is, is less challenging because it's so high profile and it's the hardest for the police to cover up. But when we talk about non-fatal police violence, so cases where the police tase somebody or, or hit them with a baton uh, or even choke them and they survive, um, those cases are substantially harder to systematically track. Um, because they're less likely to be reported in the media, we have to go to get that data. Oftentimes, we have to go directly to the police department and request that through a public records request. And different states have different rules about what the police are required to share in response to those requests. So in many states, the law prohibits us from getting access to information on officer names and officer disciplinary records. So if we want to know, you know who are the officers that were responsible for, for, for causing this harm, in many states, we just can't get, you know, the police department will cite state law and say, well, we're not required to give you this information. Um, but in, in some states, that's not the case. So you have states um, where, you know, even in, 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 you know, fairly conservative states, you have laws that are fairly open around access to officer disciplinary files. Um, even like, you know, activists worked for many years and successfully repealed 50A in New York to get access to officer disciplinary files. So there, you know, that's, that's not just because a state is, uh, has a particular law doesn't mean that can't be changed. And there's a lot of work being done to change that. Um, but right now that's, that's the most difficult, that's the most challenging information to get is information not specifically on the officers responsible on their disciplinary files. Um, you know, and, and that's something that we get in some places, but other places um, we're more focused on advocacy and making the case for changing that law. Sam, talk to me about your background and how you scale up from, an, you know, a, a, a seeing a void in the information dissemination to a full-fledged organization who's producing data and information that, you know, you you can barely find anywhere else. So um, I think the first lesson in this is don't wait for permission. Mm. Um, and, you know, you would think that the federal government with all of their resources, all of their reach, all of their staff across the country could collect and publish reliable and consistent data on police violence every single year. And they just don't do that, right? And it's not, you know, it's not that they can't, it's not that it can't be done. It's not that it hasn't been done. You know, I I mean, we're proving that it can be done, um, but 
they just simply are, are not willing to or are intentionally trying to cover up some of this information. Um, and then, you know, you also have a huge infrastructure around um, crime and this sort of panic over crime. So you have billions of dollars going to, you know, universities, going to departments of criminology, um, going to this entire field of criminology that is, you know, for decades has been pretty exclusively focused on how do we use the police as a tool to fight crime? That's sort of been like the, the theory behind the field, right? How do we understand crime? How, how does the police stop crime? That's sort of what they spend all their investment and research studying. So, they've, so they can track all kinds of things having to do uh, with crime, having to do with public safety, having to do with uh, police behavior and psychology and how the police respond to crime and how it impacts the police, but they do not study crimes committed by the police. They, would, they did not study police misconduct and how the police actually may be causing harm in communities rather than stopping crime, which is sort of their theory. And so, you know, you, you talk about systematic bias, right? You talk about how an entire industry has been created really to fuel the carceral state, right? And, and, and yet not even a fraction of that investment, not even, I mean, it, it really didn't take, you know, a massive infrastructure to do this data collection work. Like this was, there was no resources. This was off the shelf solutions, like finding free trial versions of website subscriptions and um, subscriptions to Tableau to do data visualizations. Um, building uh, databases on Google Sheets. So, I mean, this was, you know, extremely done on a, on a shoestring budget, but done because it needed to be done and there was a way to do it and nobody else was doing it in the way that it needed to be done. So I think, you know, the, the lesson is don't wait for permission. And number two, you know, if you are interested in getting into, you know, one of these fields, particularly as a, as a Black person, you know, you will see these huge gaps in, in focus, in study, in investment, in research, and so many of the issues that impact our communities are just being understudied, um, are being underfunded, uh, are not really being prioritized as a topic of conversation. Meanwhile, I mean, this has been a national conversation for eight years, um, and you'd expect that, that there'd be more data already being produced around it. Absolutely. I'm looking on your website right now. And as of, of this recording, you know, it, the information so incredibly up to the minute. Um, and I'm extremely impressed by that. Like, as of this recording, there have been eight days so far in 2022, when police did not kill people in the US. Um, how important is the immediacy that you feel when you're on the website? And also the wording, like the even the way that that is phrased, I think is important and serves a purpose. So would you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so first of all, you know, when we originally launched, we launched, um, you know, a, a, a database and a map um, and, and charts that help explain uh, police violence across the country. Um, and that is sort of, yeah, as data has continued to be collected year over year, there's a lot more information now um, that the data allows uh, us to under, un uncover and explain um, that wasn't available before. And so when you go to mappingpoliceviolence.us, 
um, which is which is the website they maintain. I mean, you could see how many people are being killed by police. It's 906 people so far this year. Um, you can see how often uh, police violence happens, uh, which is you know one one of the the purposes of of this site really is to demonstrate one how systemic this issue is. Um, so you can see on the map how you know, this is happening all over the country. Um, two, you can see how regular um, how regular police violence is in the United States. So 1,100 people about are killed by police every single year. That's been the case for the past decade, every single year. Um, and every single day, it's about three people killed by the police every single day. So it happens at a shocking regularity. You can see the disparities and who's impacted by that violence. So black people are about three times more likely to be killed by police, uh, more likely to be unarmed when killed by police. That has been true every single year for the past decade as well. Um, and so, so you can see sort of the consistency of the system reproducing the same outcomes every single year. And the data can tell that story. Um, and it is not a story of you know, what the police would have you believe, which is that this is some a series of isolated events with bad apple officers and if you just you know charge this one two or three officers or or discipline this one two or three officers that somehow the the overall situation would change that's not what we're seeing when we look at the data i mean it's so much more widespread and consistent and happening all across the country at shocking regularity for for any one small change to make a, a huge dent in that i think about the use of data visualization as a medium as well because I think when you're talking about numbers and statistics, people have a hard time seeing the impact of that unless you sort of boil it down and maybe that doesn't tell the whole story. You mentioned um, the role that data visualization plays, um, you know, in transferring from a Google sheet to the website that, that you've created. Talk to me about when you choose a medium to take all of this data that you all have collected or you've collected, um, and you think about the impact you want it to have, does that go into the way you create the data visualization element? So I think absolutely. Um, and I, you know, when, when you look at the data, when you look at the, the website, I mean, it is a particular narrative. The data does speak to and, and tells a, a particular story about police violence in this country. Mm. Um, and I mean, the story doesn't look good for the police. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not that, you know, the site is designed to make the police look bad or anything like that. More so, it's just designed that, to answer very specific questions that have been, you know, top of the mind, have been the subject of, of national conversation for eight years about, you know, police violence and how often and widespread is it and, and how often the office is held accountable and who's impacted. The basic questions that the federal government isn't, hasn't been answering that, you know, haven't really been um, invested in as a as as subjects of research inquiry, and so that's that's sort of the the basic point of the website. Now, you know, there is sort of this myth that that data is necessarily neutral, um, or even that data visualization is neutral, um, and I don't think that that's the case. And I think that there are design elements um, that are designed to to reveal particular aspects of the system. And so, you know, when you look at the disparities, um, you know, there are different ways of visualizing disparities. So for example, you know, in the US, about 62% of the population is white uh, and about 13% of the population is black. 
Um, now, when you look at police violence, when you look at fatal police violence, people were killed by the police. Uh, it's about 25% of those killed by the police are black uh, and about 50% of those killed by the police are white, which is disproportionate, is, is completely disproportionate to the population. Um, that, sh that says for the average black people, you're about three times more likely to be killed by police per person, which is the only thing that really matters is like a black person in America is knowing like, okay, like what is my risk of being killed by the police? Um, but if, if you visualize, you can visualize that in a variety of ways. You can show, you know, a chart that has, you know, a big block with 50% for white people and a, and a smaller black block with 25% for, for black people yeah. and, and try to communicate a narrative that this is less racially disproportionate than it is. Um, and that would be mathematically, you know, it would technically be correct, um, but you wouldn't really be focusing on the question that people have, which is what is my risk? Uh, by race of being killed by the police. Mm. Um, so, and that risk is you have a three times higher risk as a black person than a white person. And that's the answer to that question, which is why it's, that's the, the, what is being emphasized and visualized on the site. So, so, oh, sorry. so those are the, I think those are just like examples of, you know, simple design choices that are ostensibly mm. neutral, but actually have a, a huge impact on how people interpret, how they uh, sort of unpack this issue uh, and so the goal of the site is to do that responsibly and in a way that 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 does center communities that are disproportionately harmed by police. Absolutely. How how do you hope this information is used? And what I mean by that is, is there a piece where I see that there's a part where people can engage civically, like reach out to their state rep to act on some of this information, right? So that's one piece of it. Do you hope that law enforcement use your work as a tool to be better and do better? I mean, so the primary audience for the site is communities that, that have questions and want to understand this issue. Mm. And, and it is policymakers that want to take that information, take that data uh, and use it to, to move forward systemic changes in legislation. So, so that's how, how I hope it's, it's used is that it, it, it does play a role in advancing um, policy and systems changes and changes that are data informed, right? Uh, so part of what the data can help us do is also understand which policies can make a bigger or smaller impact on this issue. So, you know, if we're looking at, for example, um, you know, we're looking at the data on killings by the police, which, which you'll find is that, you know, fewer than 1% of, of those cases uh, involve a chokehold, for example. Um, so if that's the case, then we know that you know, bans on chokeholds across the country are not going to substantially change that the overall number of people killed by the police. Um, similarly, you know, no-knock warrants is another um, issue that, that is a lot of conversation. Um, and we know in the database there are about 100 people who have been killed in one of those circumstances over the past decade. Um, but there have been about 10,000 people killed by police during that time period. So, so again, we're able to, to understand sort of the, the scale of change that needs to happen and how we need, yes, we need to, you know, ban chokeholds. Obviously we need to, you know, police shouldn't be breaking down people's doors or raiding people's homes. But then even if we were to fix those two issues, there are a whole bunch of other things that we need to do and that we need to be focused on that are, that, that are more systemic and sort of wholesale in terms of uh, shifting resources from law enforcement to communities uh, and, and reducing and shrinking the size of the carceral state that will need to happen. Um, for us to solve this issue. And in speaking in that same vein, you know, here in Massachusetts, we have a uh, 
peace officers or police officers uh, certification law that was passed a few years ago. This is the first year where a few dozen police officers were decertified or did not earn their certification or recertification because they didn't meet certain criteria. It's unclear what that means now going forward, but I know that there are other post programs or similar ones across the country. Do you think that certifying police officers is a way to get these numbers down to zero? So I think it's it's one of many strategies that will need to be taken. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the big challenge with the decertification systems in most states is that the, in order to get decertified, an officer would have to commit multiple and egregious offenses to the extent that, you know, it, it, by that point, so many people have probably been harmed and the officer has not ever been reported for it. The complaints that have been reported never led anywhere. Um, so nationwide, so nationwide, when you look at uh, data on complaints against police, um, only about 12% of complaints that are reported end up resulting in a sustained finding, which means that the officer faces some sort of discipline. Wow. Um, and most of the discipline is like a slap on the wrist, is there a reprimand? Um, and then an even smaller proportion of officers ever are, that's just to report it to their own employer. Now, an even smaller proportion are ever reported to like the state, right? And would actually face state decertification. Um, and so it's a very tiny proportion of, of officers that are often impacted by these systems because they're sort of designed to make it very difficult um, to, to ever get to the point where an officer would be decertified. Um, so so that's, a, that's a big challenge with it is, is making sure that, um, that the officers that do commit these offenses are actually uh, identified early on. Um, and you can use data to do that too. So, so in Chicago, for example, they got access to uh, the, the Citizens Police Data Project, um, got access to all of the use of force re uh, reports from the Chicago Police Department, all of the civilian complaints against officers, all of the misconduct lawsuits against officers for the past 20 years. And they did this whole analysis where they were able to actually predict. So you hear about like predictive policing and how it's being weaponized against black and brown communities. What right. they were able to do was sort of flip this on its head and use that same methodology against the police. And so they were able to predict which officers would down the road commit misconduct, which officers would be more likely to shoot people or harm people based on them getting reported early on and nothing being done about it. And so they were actually able to construct this extremely detailed analysis. They could predict based on proximity. They were literally contact tracing police violence, because if you were in close proximity to somebody who, you know, you think about, about this sort of like coronavirus, if you're in proximity to an officer who is like one of those officers like Derek Chauvin, who is just wildly aggressive, is a trainer of other officers, you know, is, is one of these sort of officers that just has, has known problems going back a long time, then the officers under their supervision down the road are more likely to actually engage in that same behavior. Um, because they've been in contact with with that officer. So literally by by finding the officers that have these extensive misconduct records and then tracing the officers who have come into contact with those officers, that data scientists have actually been able to predict which officers who may have never been reported would down the road be five times more likely to shoot somebody, nine times more likely to be named in an excessive force complaint. Um, so, so there's a lot of interesting things you can actually do 
with the data where you can get access to all of the data. You get the officer names, a disciplinary file for an entire department. I mean, you can do some interesting things. Um, but again, you know, a lot of laws will need to be changed in a lot of states for us to get comparable data for, for a number of police departments that are not providing it now. And as we, we sort of wrap up here, I'm, I'm curious about the future of this particular field. I mean, the hope is that you don't have to continue to map violent, police violence, or you do as a deterrent. Um, where do you see all of this work, all of this efforts, your efforts, um, some of the other groups and folks that you mentioned, data scientists um, that are involved in this particular effort, where do you see all of this moving toward the future? Because we are, you know, we've had a number of these uh, shootings that are high profile. We've had this quote, end quote, racial reckoning. Where are we moving toward or or do you see that there's going to be a prolonged stalemate or prolonged um, stagnation in, in action on the parts of public officials, on the parts of police departments, uh, on the parts of federal government? So, um, you know, it's a deep question because so yeah. much of this is dependent on our politics, our political outcomes that are way beyond like uh, the data community's ability to to change or, or, or directly alter. Um, but, you know, I will say that right now the field is moving towards collecting more extensive, more useful and detailed data around policing than the federal government has. Um, that information, as I said, in, in Chicago and other places is identifying very sort of fine grained changes that could happen as well as macro level changes. So when we look at like big picture, the data suggests and points towards reducing the size of law enforcement agencies, reducing police budgets, investing in alternatives um, that are effective, that are data informed. And we know that police departments that have more officers are more likely to arrest people, particularly for low level offenses, um, and more likely to use force, including dead, deadly force against people. So we need to move away from that direction um, and reduce the size and scope of law enforcement, along with a range of other um, systemic changes and changes focused on accountability. Now to get there, right, so the data can, can help us provide, provide us a roadmap of the types of changes that can make a difference. Um, but to get there, that's so political, right? Like we'd, especially now in the context of this national panic over crime um, and, you know, a, a real narrative shift that the police have, have driven, trying to say that, well, we, we actually can't do anything to hold the police accountable because crime is out of control. We need to address crime and police need more money and more officers. And that's exactly the opposite direction that we need to go in. So I think right now the data can be helpful in making the case for why we don't need to go in that direction and why we need to actually move in the direction that organizers and protesters have been demanding um, towards reducing the size and scope of the police state um, and investing in, in alternatives that work. Um, so, so I think that's sort of where it's at. Data can be a tool to make the case for those changes, the data suggests that those changes will not only reduce police violence, but might also reduce crime as well. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of where it's at. Sam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My thanks to Sam Singyongwe. Check out the project at mappingpolice.us. And for more Common Narrative, you can hit us up on social at Common Narrative or Common Narrative Media. Tune in every Monday from 1 to 3 
right here on Spark FM Online and find past episodes on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Take care of each other.